0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Fun Field podcast. It's tricky to ride on time. To ride on time. That's right. That's right. It's tricky. Tricky, mind you. My name is Scott Morris, and today I'm joined by Drew Tavendale. Hi, <laughs> Drew Tavendale. Mind you, not really. Of course, the simple power of suggestion. <laughs>
1: That's that song in my head for the rest of the day. <laughs> life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, but done by Michael Caine, which is the important thing. Run DMC versus
1: Michael Caine, okay.
0: i telling you, it's, it's, it's the way of the future. I'm going to start a, a cover versions podcast, just devoted to doing that kind of thing. So th- this entirely re- film-related chat welcomes you to another intermission podcast where we just talk about films and stuff, what we've done, seen over the past month and a bit. So, without much further ado, I guess we shall just crash into the first one of them, What is a Big Shark? Which is, true? will you tell us about The Meg?
1: It's strange to think that The Meg, a biopic of The Psychic, who was a substantial part of the early years of the BBC's National Lottery broadcasts, (laughs) would gross over $500 million worldwide, but it has done just that. Okay, well, half of that is true. The Meg (laughs) is a shark film, probably the most successful since The Seminole Jaws, and takes its truly stupid name from the Megalodon, the giant prehistoric shark that many of us are, alas, familiar with in movie form thanks to the considerably less than seminal The Asylum work Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus. <laughs> no airliners are downed by a shark in this film, though, and the jury is still out as to whether or not this is a good or bad thing. <laughs> Marine biologists working in billionaire Rain Wilson's underwater laboratory are attempting to prove that the ocean bottom isn't, in fact, the bottom of the ocean.
0: And it, <laughs> and There's got to be a bottom, though, somewhere, right? And then that will be the bottom of the ocean.
1: <laughs> it's bottoms all the way down, Scott. <laughs> yes, they're attempting to prove that the, the ocean bottom isn't, in fact, the bottom of the ocean. And that it is, in fact, a thermocline of hydrogen sulphide, a discrete layer of super-cold liquid below which there is a whole other ecosystem. Unseen and unimagined by humans. Not quite as far fetched as it might sound in fact, thermoclines are real, and even underwater lakes are actually a thing. A hidden home for a twenty five meter plus prehistoric fish with bad temper may be (laughs) pushing it a bit. But you know, hey, let's just go with it. When the research submarine is attacked by the Meg, Incidentally, this, like Jaws, is a literary adaptation, but I'm going to stick my neck out here and suggest that Steve Alton's Meg, A Novel of Deep Terror, is very much of airport filler stock. (laughs) uh, And submarine left stranded, meaning that only one man can save them. Jason Statham's Jonas Taylor. A deep sea rescue expert who, of course, was seen in the opening of the film having had to choose to leave behind colleagues in order to save the rest and is now retired from diving. <laughs> Persuaded to return, not least due to the fact his ex-wife is one of the stranded crew, Taylor successfully rescues most of the crew from the stricken submarine but their rapid ascent through the thermocline opens a hole of warm water allowing the huge, bitey beasties to follow them through said toothy fellows then proceed to grumpily eat everything um, <laughs> and well this aggression will not stand I certainly didn't have high hopes for the Meg and numerous reviews have firmly stuck it in the not good enough to be good but also not bad enough to be good bracket but well I like Jason Statham so I thought I'd at least give it a go and you know what it's alright <laughs> really it's not too bad at all. It's not doing anything particularly original or special, but it is doing it fairly competently, and director John Turtletaub has the restraint to not overuse the shark, especially in the first half of the film. The characters are, for the most part, likeable, if cookie-cutter, and it has Jason Statham. This is more of the state of, a say, a transporter or a mechanic rather than a snatch, crank or even a hummingbird, but charisma and personality go a long way. It could, easily, have been a big-budget The Asylum Picture rather than just a big-budget B-movie. A very big-budget B-movie, in fact. Wikipedia lists its budget as being between one hundred and $180 million. What? Yes. <laughs> Tax-dodge, presumably, because it, <laughs> it doesn't have $180 million on screen. Um, yeah. It doesn't look bad, but it doesn't have $180 million on screen. And it's certainly the type of film that it pays to not think too much about. But really, it's perfectly serviceable Saturday afternoon fare that I'm pleasantly surprised to discover I enjoyed. But really, instead of this Jason Statham stuff, more Chev Chelios, please. Also, at no point does anyone attempt to kill a shark with an oven. This makes it, by some margin, either considerably better... Or considerably worse than Deep Blue Sea. (laughs) I can't decide which.
0: (laughs) Which apparently now has a sequel. Deep Blue Sea 2. Imaginatively titled. Which we'll probably have to cover at some point because everyone loves sharks.
1: I think we have to do Ancient Snow Shark first. um, Although I suspect (laughs) that has absolutely zero oven potential.
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, I'll, I'll probably get to this. I haven't done so so far. It didn't seem to be a priority, but um, yeah, uh, uh, like yourself, I uh, I like the state, So Yeah, that, that's
1: really what did it for me, Scott. I had, it's not like I was totally like, turned off to this film, so I was aware of it, and I'm like, that film seems quite meh. Mm. And then I was just surprised to hear that it had done quite so much business. Uh, I then had the opportunity to see it, and I thought, yeah, you know what? Jason Statham generally very watchable I'll give it a go and it's alright it's yeah, it's the sort of thing yeah. bank holiday afternoon rainy afternoon just mm. sit and watch this don't think it too much and it's just it's fun for what it is which is a film with an enormous shark in it <laughs> and quite often people are in the market for a film with an enormous shark that's why they keep making them so.
0: yes because sharks are cool <laughs> Sorry, I obviously I can't add <laughs> much more to it because I've not it
1: so so Scott tell us something about a film that you have seen which would be much 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 easier for you and the film that you have seen would be Mm. something because we don't have the list anymore so remind me
0: (laughs) That's a good point Uh, Mission Impossible
1: Ah Mission Impossible Yes Scott so six Mission Impossible now so tell us about the most recent of those please
0: Yeah and if you told me back in what 96 that the then-just-released Mission Impossible would spawn this intermittent franchise that's still running strong 22 years later, I, well, probably wouldn't have had much of a basis for... Judging, because I didn't see it until a few years after it was released. But to be honest, once you told me a third film was being made after John Woo's honking second outfit. <laughs> <laughs> outing, all bets are off. So Fallout comes hot on the heels of Rogue Nation for certain three-year definitions of the term, with Thomas Cruise's Ethan Hunt and his team on the lookout for stolen plutonium with the returning cast of Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg in support. Said plutonium is said to be passing through the shadowy network of the Apostles, a shadowy successor organisation to the shadowy syndicate of Rogue Nation, and they're going to sell it to the shadowy John Lark, a shadowy extremist lurking in extreme shadow. (laughs) Hunt's team is being antagonistically babysat by Henry Cavill's CIA thug, August Walker, who immediately goes full-on moustache twirling to the point that I assumed there must be some sort of double bluff going on as to whether he was going to turn out to be the bad guy or not, but it turns out it was in fact a triple bluff, which is functionally identical to a single bluff. (laughs) And, And so begins a series of action scenes, chases and punching and kicking from point to point with the thinnest possible layer of connective ligaments. Now, I'm generally a staunch defender of action movies concentrating on action over intricate plotting, particularly when this film, in common with most other spy capers, is high concept nonsense. Same with most character work. It's great to have, but I'm not going to let it get in the way of a high adrenaline onslaught. And myth, as I suppose I'll abbreviate it, it just goes a little bit too extreme in this regard, and it feels like a video game where you're frantically hammering the X button through the cutscenes <laughs> to skip to the next action segment. Though no, there's fast paced, and then there's two Fast-paced,
1: very sexual, uh. discover mold.
0: Yes. <laughs> Maybe it's because I saw this when I was still a bit jet-lagged, but I didn't get any sense of character motivation whatsoever from the bad guys, and the interaction scene exposition was either rushed or forgettable in as much as I can't remember half of why what happened happened. And of course, the correct amount of the returning Sean Harris's Solomon Lane in this film is zero Solomon Lane, so this is well over the RDA for it. Now, this has been called, relatively frequently, the best action film of the year, and... You know, what it, it might well be, at least from the slender subset I've been able to see. Uh, it's a good old-fashioned high-octane thrill ride benefiting from Cruise's Jackie Chan-esque passion for murdering himself through stunt work that's commendable in an absolutely insane way, although for legal reasons I must point out that no employee of Fudson Film Incorporated makes any assertions positive or negative on the state of the mental health of Mr Thomas Fullerton Cruise, Esquire, or his stupid religion. Um, <laughs> however, uh, this has occasionally been followed up by claims that this is the best action film ever, which makes me think that either i have started to take or ran out of crystal meth it's got some great action set pieces sure but not much else and the final act is a bit of a drag and as good as the fight choreography in the lauded toilet fight scene is neither Cruz nor cavill can magically turn themselves into bruce lee or tony ja so let's have some perspective on this please this uh, is
1: even the best action film in the mission impossible franchise <laughs> that's the most people have genuinely said that 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 has baffled me scott a ridiculous thing to say
0: Yes Not I suppose That best action film Of the year Is a title to be ashamed of I mean I Definitely prefer Ant-Man and the Wasp If you're going to count that As an action film Rather than some I was some, thinking exactly uh, that When one. you mentioned that But it's, it's certainly more than Worth considering If action cinema Is your bag Or bag adjacent but yes, uh, people claiming it uh, to be so outstandingly fabulous is kind of puzzling me. I don't quite get where they're coming from. The characters are all a bit cardboard cut-out eh? The action scenes are great, but why most of what's going on is is going on is... Maybe you need to be paying a little bit more attention than I was giving it, but it didn't seem to demand any attention from me. It just had stuff happening, and I was happy throwing that on the screen, and, and I was happy just watching it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly not something I'd want to uh, revisit particularly often, as I have done with many of the actual best action films of all times. I was thoroughly entertained by it. It was a
1: well produced, slick action film, like they have been since since it's sort of kind of reboot with Mission Impossible yeah. 4. Uh, with Ghost Protocol um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the job problem. That's what the Mission Impossible franchise is it, It's really slightly produced They're very entertaining With really good acting Which is something you might not get in a lot of action film franchises Which makes yeah, a big true. difference Yeah, uh, They are however undeniably formulaic And it's getting a bit tiresome That they have <laughs> oh, to Oh,
0: Ethan Hunt's on his own again Oh, what a surprise yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not even just that Just like,
1: oh, they're being betrayed by someone how oh, did they come up with, with that idea? And it's like, yes. See, this person who, within one half of one millisecond of appearing on screen, I had pegged as being the one who's going to turn out to be the betrayer, <laughs> turned out to be the betrayer. Yeah. I mean, you need to work a bit harder at that, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I said. I thought that that seemed so blatantly obvious that I thought I must have been trying to sell you a dummy, but nope. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was too. Straight root one.
1: <laughs> it was too obvious. Like, you no. Know, also, what was going on with that facial here? That, that <laughs> does not suit that person at all. No. no. Maybe he just did it to mess with Warner Brothers so they'd be forced to m- remove that when he did the reshoots for Man of Steel. Oh, well, sorry. Um, yeah. Dawn just of, Ass League. Dawn of Justice. Justice. No, that's Batman. But yeah, Justice League, that's the one. So. Dawn, Dawn
0: of Justice League, yeah. That's one. Um, and yeah, because
1: Sean Harris is, in gross Nation, super creepy and quite distinctive, so like the...
0: See that people were saying that at the time of the last film I, I don't get it just just cuz he sneers everything in an accent like this I just I don't find that creepy or not, it just sounded stupid to me <laughs> But maybe just me I don't I didn't I, I didn't I get ju- it I just feel that
1: not unsettling much so, I find it like, unpleasant and maybe that's enough um,
0: I'm going yeah. to deliver every line in a sneer Nyeh. <laughs> Shut up <laughs> <laughs> Maybe
1: it should have been played by Paul Whitehouse playing one of the gets from Harry Enfield <laughs> as basically you've done it there. Uh, you yeah,
0: dirty old man. <laughs>
1: yeah, the the idea of there being fallout from the actions in the film before, that's interesting. but I don't think they really did anything particularly good with it. And I, mean, I understood the motivations of the people, but it's more along the lines of, yeah, they basically just wanted to watch the world burn, which has been done before and better. Mm-hmm. All of which sounds quite negative. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. I enjoyed the action set pieces. Finding Simon Pegg's character pretty tiresome though. And he's in it in this film a bit less, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like Simon Pegg. It's more that the, that character never seems to quite fit in with how everybody else's characters are written. It always feels a little out of place.
0: Yeah. He, he, he just always comes across as a complete liability to anyone who's doing that sort of work. Yeah. And that's maybe a bit of it. I, mean, I know it's comic relief and all that, but it, it's it's just not funny enough to <laughs> warrant him being there. Yeah. So
1: that's fairly minor though. But I, because the acting is good quality, you've got quality actors in there, and that always makes mm. a difference. Poor old poor old Alec Baldwin getting real short shrift in this instalment. Yes. No, that's a pity. I'd like to see more of Alec Baldwin. But yeah, for all that, it, it's just it's formulaic, but it's really slickly produced. It's probably the best action franchise going at the moment. Mm-hmm. and it's entertaining it's not not special but i don't think it particularly needs to be you know yeah, it's I mean, not the fast and furious film i didn't spend the whole thing like, why <laughs> are people watching this and i know that at the same time i'd be watching it saying that so yeah I, i'm the idiot <laughs> it's not, just there's nobody enjoying this apart from the rock and then at the least the last one jason statham who mm. like realize how ridiculous this is and they're having a laugh on if behind everybody else's back and everybody else is terrible and taking it <laughs> hugely seriously uh, whereas this is just an action franchise it's just knows what it's going for and nails it pretty much every time
0: yeah it's a hell of a spectacle there's certainly a place for that and in cinema, so it's, uh, it's one of the better sort of event movie to kind of deals. It's w- one of the few that you'd actually watch and think it's, it, it gets something out would be on the big screen. It probably would not translate all that well at home, but uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's an enjoyable watch if you've not seen it already. It's definitely worth doing so, but uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not as blown away by it as other people have. No, I was again, it's solidly
1: entertaining. Uh, it does leave me wondering, though, exactly what sort of knowledge of parish these people have because you know paris isn't a mexico city or a tokyo but it's still a large city and yet everybody in all the paris sequences seems to be able to get to exactly where everybody else is and know where they are within <laughs> seconds yeah <laughs> which, which is convenient for getting about a city but i've been there and it's it's really not that easy it would be handy if it was but <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you like the other mission impossible films you're going to like this i would think but that hyperbole about it being the greatest action film of all time, or it's not even the greatest action film in the series or of this year. That's, that's
0: insanity, Scott. Yes, commendable eagerness, but yes, not accurate in reality. Right, this will take us in no way. I can really be bothered linking uh, <laughs> to the next film we're going to talk about, which is Mom and Dad.
1: Oh, you're not going for one of your patented really, 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 really tenuous links. <laughs> well, let's say you. No. I'm not immune to doing such nonsense <laughs> myself. <laughs> Brian Taylor one half of the Neville Dean-Taylor partnership that brought us the hugely entertaining crank films, writes and directs "Mom and Dad, a comedy horror film that feels, in many ways, like you might imagine Shaun of the Dead would be after being passed through a Chev Chelios filter. <laughs> Talking of which, and for the second time in this podcast, can we begin the petition for the return of Mr Chelios, please? Yes, immediately. Because he was great. The action begins with a mother parking her car on a level crossing, then abandoning the car with the with her baby inside just before an oncoming train destroys the vehicle. A tragic story of postpartum depression, perhaps? Well, we'll see. We then visit the Ryan household, where Brent, Mr Nicholas Cage, thank you very much, and his (laughs) wife, Kendall, Selma Blair, are getting ready before school with their 15-year-old daughter, Carly, played, because of course she is, by a 23-year-old, and preschool, well, I guess preschool... But he's played by an 11-year-old who looks like an 11-year-old, so your guess is <laughs> as good as mine, son Josh. There's some tension here, but nothing seems too out of the ordinary. In fact, it all seems pretty cliché. Bratty teenage daughter, resentful parents longing for lost youth, innocent younger child, air-headed friends. It's an American suburbia we've seen a thousand times. In the background, we see and hear snippets of events that show that something really weird is going on. Some mysterious phenomenon is having an effect on people not dissimilar to that seen in many zombie films, but it is a very particular one. Parents are turning on and attempting to murder, mostly successfully, their own children. And only their own children. They're perfectly friendly and normal towards everyone else. After seeing a Child brutally keyed to death by his own mother at her school. Carly races home to find her brother, followed shortly thereafter by her parents, who try many brutal and inventive methods of filicide. <laughs> and that's it, really. Dizzying editing and flashbacks that will be familiar to anyone who's seen other Neville dean Taylor joints. Gore, over-the-top action, a small but great role for Lance Henriksen. And a wisely deployed Nicolas Cage, who the director has gradually turned up to <laughs> all of the Nicolas Cage by the film's climax. Glorious <laughs> stuff. A masterpiece it is most certainly not. But what it is, is 83 minutes of thoroughly decent entertainment with a lot of full-on Nicolas Cage by the end.
0: Yes, this popped up in a lot of, I guess last year it would have been best horror films of the years like this isn't really a horror film this is clearly a comedy for the by and large and it's an action Um, film more
1: than anything I guess
0: yeah um, certainly the way it's edited and uh, the sort of kineticness of it and it's really entertaining yeah quality cinema no but (laughs) it's certainly a lot of fun
1: yeah it's absolute (laughs) schlocky Cliché nonsense, but it's so fun. And Nicholas Cage doing full on Nicholas Cage is so
0: much <laughs> entertainment value. Yeah, Yeah it's very much the Nick Cage show. It's just, just do whatever you like, Nick. So, I'll, I'll just start shouting about who the saws, the saws all saws all. Yes, because it saws <laughs> all. Well, well, frothing at the mouth. Yes, yeah, to give it its due, it's actually quite an inventive setup. In the whole first act, As you say it does kind of quite well? It sort of. Not in ta- not playing all of its cards on the table at once There's a bit of, maybe not exactly suspense But there's a bit of uh, intrigue as to what actually is going on Before that basically just gets <laughs> Dropped as a, <laughs> as a, a, pla- a Plot uh, strand That doesn't have any particular further interest in And then just goes on full on mental by the end of it And uh, yeah it's, it's it's 83 minutes of Incredibly entertaining movie making Yes, absolutely recommended I, I really loved it Yeah Fill the year material, certainly not, but it's certainly a hell of a lot of fun,
1: yeah, absolutely. And yeah, nice to see Lance Henrikson back, yeah, as <laughs> <That's> murdering grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I just now want to see Nick Cage in a crank film,
0: yeah. <laughs> He, he can do that, it could work uh, Nick, as an antagonist and Jeff Chelios getting into that. would work, I think. That's uh, we'll, <laughs> start, we'll start writing that, and I'm sure Nick Cage would appear in it because he's Nick Cage, that's more or less what he'll do.
1: Yes, how many films is Nick Cage doing a year? All it's like, it's all, all, all of the films, yes, <laughs> that's right. Nick Cage is in all of the films, <laughs> so yeah. So, that's I had mentioned doing this in the podcast ages ago, I'd never got around to it. And, and then, because I, so I never watched it, and then he you said you'd watched it, well, and I'm glad you did because it's, yes. it's a great deal of fun. So, I recommend yes. any of our listeners watch it too. I think it's a Netflix joint, so it's you know, fairly easily available. Hmm. So, uh, we're going to move on from Nicholas. G- I can't do any sort of linking device either because I've no idea what this <laughs> film's about, other than I think I saw a trailer that looked appalling. <laughs> Tell me, is the trailer correct for The guy Who Dumped Me, Scott?
0: Um, It's maybe actually slightly better than the trailer suggests, but yes, The Spy Who Dumped Me, Mila Kunis' store clerk. Audrey Stockton and Spencer Birthday upset as she's just been dumped via text message by her now ex-boyfriend, Justin Theroux's Drew. Consoled by her free-spirited best friend, Kate McKinnon's Morgan, things take a turn for the unexpected when Audrey finds out that Drew is a spy, and for reasons I don't think are worth getting into in the context of this review, she must deliver secret information to a contact in Vienna to thwart an internal threat in the US and British governments. So, off Audrey and Morgan pop to the old world, pursued by various dwells, and, well, as with any spy caper things are not what they first appear now this film is resoundingly triumphantly okay <laughs> it screams okayness from every frame boldly proclaiming itself as just about funny enough not to complain about much it entreats you to think of it as adequate and if at all possible not think at all about spy from a few years back which plowed a very similar path but was much much better in every regard and <laughs> thank you to serafinovitz and jason statham yes it's trying to mine a little bit of situational humour from its action scenes, as the surprisingly Deadpool-esque moments of graphic violence that ensue, uh, no doubt meant as some kind of counterpoint to the surprisingly warm relationship between the leads, and it does make it a little bit discordant at times, but it also contributes just enough to the average laugh quotient that, again, it's not worth getting annoyed about in a film this daft. It's a film that's spending a lot of time coasting on Kate McKinnon's brand of off-kilter comedy, so to a degree it's her doing her thing again, with Kunis as a capable... whatever the appropriate non-gendered, non-heteronormative terminology for straight man is these days. In a decade, perhaps that'll be a criticism, but McKinnon is as yet far from being overexposed, so I'm on board with the off-kilter. To a degree, it's a film with a much better cast than the script deserves, which helps things ticking along. I could go on, but to be honest, I'd be repeating myself. It's exactly average and so it's not worth going out of your way either to see or avoid, meaning, I suppose, it's a film that you will inevitably crash into, perhaps on your streaming service of choice, where you'll have an okay old time with it. I award this film average out of 10.
1: Yes, um, (laughs) I saw this trailer and I thought, well, this looks insipid, Mm. and what you've seen about it it doesn't sound like it rises an awful lot above that.
0: No, not really. Um, If you've seen the trailer, you can can perfectly well extrapolate all the rest of the film, um, but probably it's It's maybe marginally funnier than the uh, trailer would entail, but yeah, not by enough that it's going to make me want to ask anyone to go out and see it. Uh, It's it's fine.
1: I (laughs) haven't had a a lot of success with the last few Mila Kunis films I've watched, so I'm a bit concerned about that. Hmm. The last two that I can recall watching, not the two most recently released, I don't think, by any but one was Jupiter Ascending, which is appalling. (laughs) Unlike the Wachowski's Cloud Atlas which was sort of its reach extended its grasp but was really interesting Jupiter's ending was just an absolute mess and she was terrible in it and then I watched the first of that there were two there could be more but for all I know bad moms right and that was one of the most painfully unfunny things I've seen in a good long time at least for that was meant to be funny And wasn't So I, I must admit I was a bit put off by um, Her being in it But yeah I have nothing else to say it's Certainly nothing Worth mentioning So Because <laughs> I'm not seeing it yes. And I probably won't So there we go <laughs> Enlightening That's that's the, what you come here for I'm really sorry I can't stop for talking now me Stop talking
0: <laughs> I'm wondering. I'm broken I'm not going to I'm not going to stop you talking, I'm going to make you talk about Hereditary, which is the next film we must discuss. (laughs) Oh,
1: Christ, no, can I just talk about Mila Kunis um, (laughs) fumblingly
0: instead? (laughs) It's It's probably more scary, so...
1: So, then, another entry into the Drew Tries Horror Again series. But, before I go further, I'd like to ask a question. It will, no doubt, sound like I'm being facetious. And, to be honest, I probably am, if only a little. But, are horror films meant to be scary? Serious question, though. I know that being straight-up frightening isn't the be-all and end-all of a horror film. Atmosphere and tension can play a large part, too. But, aren't they supposed to be, you know, horrifying? (laughs) I ask because I wonder if somewhere along the line I fundamentally misunderstood them, given how few have made me even a little scared. So few, I suspect, that even those that have in some way unsettled me can be dismissed as a statistical anomaly. So maybe the problem is me expecting them to be frightening. This I doubt, however, given that some video games and plenty of books over the years have been able to exert exactly that response in me. And a misunderstanding of purpose certainly doesn't excuse the typically piss-poor acting, writing and direction most of the genre seems to exhibit. I do still try, though on occasion, hoping that I will find that elusive film that will f*** me right up. Which, while I suspect you can all guess where this is heading, brings me to Hereditary, the latest horror, and crikey, can I not put enough inverted commas around that word, horror film to pique my interest and persuade me to test its wares. Certainly, the trailer looked interesting, And the idea of the link between the happenings in the house and the detailed miniatures created by Tony Collette's character had the potential to be creepy. Sadly, the miniatures more or less have sawed all to do with anything that happens in the film, and seem to have mostly been added to create stylish trailers and posters. Okay, yes, you could argue that the framing of the shots matches those little dioramas, but the visuals, like everything else here, are empty and dull the miniatures match collects Carter preoccupations, they say. Mind-blowing. There has been so much breathless hyperbole associated with hereditary, with newspapers and other websites carrying ridiculous headlines like, and I am quoting verbatim, hereditary, scientifically proven to be scariest movie of the year. People are calling this new movie the scariest horror film ever made, and it's leaving them terrified. And scariest horror film in years is so terrifying people are crying at cinema. These reports, like this film, are absolute greedy horror. <laughs> Tony Collette plays Annie Graham, an artist from a family with an almost comically extensive history of mental illness, married to Gabriel Byrne Steve and mother to Peter and Charlie, who are definitely human. <laughs> Is human a character trait? They have hair as well. The <laughs> human and have hair. The film begins with the funeral of Annie's mother, an apparently unpleasant woman whose influence persists in Annie's life after her death and seems to be affecting her family, particularly her daughter Charlie, Millie Shapiro. A creepy idiot child who chops the head off of dead birds with scissors and has to be constantly reminded not to eat nuts despite having a potentially <laughs> fatal nut allergy. Her son-, <laughs> Her son Peter, Alex Wolf, seems less affected at first, at least until further tragedy strikes, but maybe that's because his entire character motivation seems to be cannabis. <laughs> As things get worse for Annie, she starts visiting a bereavement support group where she meets Joan, and Dowd, and, on the surface, friendly woman who begins to exert her own influence over the family. Mysteries are uncovered because, of course, everything is not as it seems. Most notably that this seems like an interesting creepy film. <laughs> Hereditary doesn't even have the good grace to be the sort of really bad horror film whose plot and story you can ridicule and enjoy tearing apart. If only it could rise to such a basic level of interest. But this is just astonishingly, almost maliciously dull. It lacks jump scares. Excellent. The positives end there. <laughs> there is no atmosphere. There is no tension. There aren't even characters. Nor, and I've accepted this due to the utter absence of anything else, are there stereotypes, archetypes, nor even ciphers. There are just some people who are there. The acting is. Well, the acting is something that happens in other films, <laughs> saving for Gabriel Byrne, who doesn't appear to have given this even minimal effort and wishes he was, he was in one of those other films. The acting is terrible, especially a spectacularly awful turn from the normally dependable Tony Collette. Now, I'm aware, as I say this, that I am in fact turning this into the sort of terrible horror film whose plot and story you can tear apart. And honestly, it's too dull to deserve it. So stop now. I will just add, though, that this film has made me wonder if I'm a psychopath. Because two related scenes, scenes that are supposed to be utterly horrifying, made me laugh. Like, a lot. A lot, a lot. Like, tears in my eyes laughing. <laughs> Also, in this film's world, corpses don't smell. Screw this film.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, what a torrent of pish. Uh I think So <laughs> d- d- it's at least one every year. They say, "Oh no, but no, this is actually a good horror film." No, go and watch Mama, everyone. This one's this was one for this is an intelligent horror film for clever people to enjoy. This, ah, <laughs> this Mama, <one."> yes. <laughs> and invariably, <laughs> I'll go and see it. Invariably torrent of pish this is no exception yeah just I, I didn't i didn't hate the acting so much in like the first half i thought it was it, that, that that kind of first half where it, it seems like it might be trying to do something that's more psychological in nature and it could be building towards some sort of vaguely <laughs> comprehensible uh, breakdown or something happening along yeah. those lines it was glacially paced and it was bored senseless but I could at least I could at least I had some sort of rough idea of where it might be going and then the whole second half of this film is apparently me supposed to be scared of a fat man in the woods and the rest of it is, is just absolute garbage <laughs> Oh, uh, <laughs> absolute garbage! <laughs> absolute garbage! Issue
1: it. I kind of just wish it'd be worse because I think I just enjoyed hating it. It was like oh, I
0: was just so bored by it. Yes, um, just oh, t- t- two hours. I think it's so a boring bored. Is it bored two hours, hours seven minutes? Uh, and like just almost nothing happens like, there's there's the one sort of shocking death in the first half th- in that first half somewhere like maybe yes. two thirds through that which i th- guess worked but, but then it did nothing else to, with it and uh yeah the, the rest of it was just hot garbage
1: yeah you know how you say <laughs> that this shocking death worked you know how i said one scene made me laugh till i was had tears in my eyes
0: To be honest, I found it quite amusing too, so you're not alone in that one.
1: That's good, because I was so bored when that happened, because it was so ridiculous and so stupid to build up to it, and I was pissing myself laughing at that scene. I really, really was. Um, So I'm glad it's not me. And then (laughs) when that very scene is referenced in a minute or later, I was like, yeah, I'm also laughing a great deal here. So if I am a psychopath, at least I have company.
0: (laughs) Yes, I I don't know if that's different if you're in the communal atmosphere of watching it in a cinema screen, but when I was watching it with my wife and my mother-in-law, I was like, no, we were all pretty much amused by that. I didn't. It, it was shocking, but shocking in a sort of ha-ha kind of way, rather than shocking <laughs> in the, the sort of way that I think it was intended to be. You know there 's films that that could like prey upon the parents worst fears of children going missing and things like that or your children dying and I can understand why that would have a, a very real emotional impact on people, but not the way this is presented where basically it 's a wily e. coyote cartoon <laughs> <laughs> and yeah.
1: when Tony Collette turns into this wide eyed crazy person at the end of the act I, I like Tony Collette a lot, and i 've never yeah. seen. Any hint that she could act this badly, I mean, she has to work <laughs> to act this badly, surely. It's, um there's a scene right near the end where she's doing something to herself with I don't know, like a cheese wire or something or mm. um and just this stupid wide eyed look in her face and it's it, it it's absolutely risible mm. I And mean, if people just like had found this scary and things like I mean, okay. And maybe it didn't work for me. But as I said, the absolute breathless hyperbole about this—the scariest film of the year, the scariest horror film—everyone's like, there's not one thing that's even <laughs> vaguely frightening about this film, not even yeah. a little bit. It's
0: like it seems like it's almost objectionably, objectively boring. Mm-hmm. The, the, it just seems like I, I don't understand how you can defend it. I don't, uh, I just don't get it. This is not the film for me, right? Yeah. If you're if you like it, more power to you. But yes. Dumpster yeah. fire. When you get
1: the revelation of what they're doing at the end, it's like, you know, if this had been a sort of bog standard terrible horror film, that probably I would just have snorted with derisive laughter at mm. what that was. But you got to the end, it's like, yeah, that more or less figures. That's dumb. <laughs> I don't care.
0: <laughs> That's dumb. But it was just, at least it's a thing that happened in a film where very few things happen. So you know, yeah. it's got that going for it at least. <laughs> I mean, this
1: is a a film that, yeah. So little was happening that I was hung up for a long time on the doormat <laughs> because there, there's a, there's a doormat that has some significance in this, right? And it's supposed to be, you know, it's helping one character uncover some secrets and it's meant to be kind of creepy and stuff. And I'm like, who in the earth sews a doormat with that material? Yeah, That would be destroyed <laughs> after you'd wiped your foot in the three times. <laughs> And you can't say it's meant to be decorative, it's a doormat. People I would like to feel it because it's a doormat, they'd expect to use it for that, but it would fall apart. Why would you have that as so a doormat? And honestly, that basically occupied my mind for so much of this run um, this of the film because saw so all else was happening. Yeah. Um <laughs> that's how bad and empty this film is. And this doormat makes no sense. Um and yeah then. As I mentioned that corpse thing too so there's a corpse at some point I don't think that's giving it away because I should prefer people didn't watch it save themselves <laughs> and, but um, and I'm thinking right okay maybe this isn't one of the, for the character who discovers a corpse's head that that's yeah. kind of cliched but okay I'll go with that and then no it, it's not an imaginary thing it's there but but apparently you can't smell a corpse I had a dead mouse in my house once I could still... A mouse. You know, you know how hmm. big mice are? I could still smell it weeks later, even after i disposed of it. This is a whole human body. Rally no smell. Okay. <laughs> I get it. When nothing else is happening, you begin to focus on that, because, you know, your mind has to have something to do yeah. while waiting <laughs> for anything at all to happen, <laughs> which it failed to do. So there we go.
0: Yes. Registry.
1: No thank you. Just Also, see, films that rely on some inexplicably stupid decision by a character to to get their plot going. I hate them and this is one of them. Hmm. Here's a character with an allergy and doesn't have the thing to treat the allergy that anybody else in the world with allergy would have with them at all times without ever even having to think about it. But no. Mm. no. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm giving this film more emotion than it deserves so I'll stop myself right there. (laughs) So, we move on to please. <laughs> a film in which Pierce Brosnan sings, Scott, I believe. So I've been told. Yes. Uh, that's to the first one and I believe his singing was a comedy point in that one also. <laughs> yes. So
0: we are of course talking about Mamma Mia, here we go again. And who's got two thumbs, isn't a huge fan of musicals or ABBA and is using an idiom that doesn't make sense in an audio format? This guy! That's... Not to say I'm anti-musical or anti-ABBA, but I don't seek either out. Not my cup of tea, and I'm okay with that, which I gather is unusual for a white male with a social media account. Following on from the phenomenally successful original, which of course I haven't seen, apart from said clip of poor Piers Brosnan being coerced into singing, <laughs> uh, Wikipedia informs me that this is both a sequel and a prequel to the first, with two main trans. In the present, on the idyllic, fictional Greek island of Val Verde or something like that, <laughs> uh, Amanda Seyfried's uh, Sophie Sheridan is on the cusp of completing the dreams of her now-deceased mother, Meryl Streep's Donna, prepping frantically for a grand opening of a swish yet homely hotel. It's made harder by her fancy, Dominic Cooper's Skye being away in business, as are two of her three fathers, don't ask, Stellan Skarsgård's Bill Anderson and Colin Firth's Harry Bright. Pierce Brosnan's Sam Carmichael is still around, however, and offers support, thankfully mainly through words rather than song, as are her mother's <laughs> friends and former bandmates, Christine Baranski's Tanya and uh, Julie Walters' Rosie. Of course, things go awry, but through the power of family and song, it all comes together in the end. Apologies for the spoilers. Interweaved with this, we get flashbacks to a young daughter, Lily James, graduating from university alongside young versions of Tanya and Rosie, played by Jessica Keaton-Wynn and Alexa Davies, uh, resolving to go on a tour of Europe before heading back to her family. Of course, during this, she bumps into the young versions of Harry, Bill... Sorry, and Sam, Hugh Skinner Josh Dillon and Jerry Mirvan respectively and vignettes play out of their respective romance and breakups with musical set pieces of various degrees of shoehornedness that's a perfectly <laughs> cromulent word now, great cinema this is not, and it is as cheesy as a slab of cheddar, but it's also so relentlessly good-natured you'd have to be deliberately curmudgeonly and, uh, and or diametrically opposed to the design goals of this film to get no entertainment at all from it. Um, as a non-competent in this particular war, I'll say in general, the young cast do better with the old singing and dancing, and the classic cast are quite the inverse, but there's no outright bad turn in here, indeed given how broadly it's played, I'm not sure a bad performance is possible there is, as you'd expect from a loosely sung together series of musical vignettes, no depth of plot or character. It's more of a variety of performance series of entertaining cameos, particularly from the likes of Oma Gigli and Andy Garcia. Even if Garcia's sort of jet with Cher implies that they met during the Mexican-American War. Um, Cher, looks, <laughs> Cher looks great for a rage, but that's a bit of a stretch. And uh, the double back double act of Christine Baranski and Julie Walters also delivers pretty well. Sadly, as modern-day Richard Curtis is involved, there's an element of cloying sentimentality woven clumsily amongst the almost <laughs> surrealistic plot developments and comic turns, more befitting a Blackadder era, Richard Curtis, but not enough to spoil the overall upbeat tone and nature. So, the point, if any, of this review is to say that I agree with the general consensus that even if you're no interest in what this film is nominally serving up, it's still enough to be enjoyable, and I presume if you enjoyed the first film, there's nothing here that would stop you enjoying this just as much. Not going to make my film of the year list by a long chalk, but I like this great deal more than other highly regarded films we've spoken of here today. Yes. Mamma Mia out of ten.
1: I didn't see the first one because I have no interest in it. Mm. I will not see this one because I have no interest in it. (laughs) Um, So I have absolutely nothing to add (laughs) at all and I'm actually going to let that stop me (laughs) as opposed to what I would normally do. (laughs)
0: uh, The only thing I'll add is I've been watching a lot of Preacher lately So it was really strange seeing uh, Dominic Cooper Appear in this as uh, Just a normal person (laughs) As opposed to what's going on in Preacher Which is mental and (laughs) quite enjoyable But yes, mental (laughs) Right um, Which obviously brings us to The Predator Which is a film that Drew's going to talk about
1: Since appearing in a small role In John McTiernan's classic Predator In 1987 Shane Black has gone on to make a great name for himself, both as a screenwriter, Lethal Weapon 1 and 2, Last Action Hero, and as a director. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3, and The Nice Guys. So seeing his name attached to The Predator, the latest instalment in Foxy's Predator franchise, naming though has not been the series' strong suit, mm-hmm. along with <laughs> frankly most other things, that um, it filled me and many others with considerable hope. Rather than bury the lead, though, I'll just get this out of the way right now. The Predator, that's the new one, and not to be confused with Predator, because <laughs> please see my remark about the naming, it's a worse film than Predator too. Anyone who heard my thoughts on that first sequel in our Predators episode last year will understand quite how scathing a comment I intend that to be. <laughs> it may even be worse than AVP Alien vs Predator. Though, that's not a discussion I particularly care to get into. I will say, though, that it it isn't as bad as Aliens vs Predator Requiem, but then most things shy of being repeatedly poked in the eye with a stick aren't as bad as Aliens (laughs) vs Predator Requiem. Although, being repeatedly poked in the eye with a stick will have the same level of being able to see anything as Aliens vs Predator Requiem. (laughs) Army sniper Quinn McKenna, Boyd Holbrook, is on a mission in Mexico when he is attacked by a predator – whose ship has crash-landed on Earth after some far too uninteresting-to-care-about internecine predator conflict. McKenna's squadmates are killed, but he manages to injure the Predator and make off with some of his nifty space tech, which he mails to himself to keep out of the hands of the military's men in black he somehow knows will be coming for him. The Predator itself is captured and brought to a military laboratory that is kitted out with magical technology, Tranquilizer rifles created by Nerf and or Nintendo by way of early 2000s <laughs> Apple and a Jake Bussie, because even this film's Bussie is worse than Predator 2. <laughs> Olivia Munn's evolutionary biologist, Dr Casey Brackett, is brought in as an expert and of course immediately begins asking to interview Quinn McKenna and espousing theories on the modus operandi of extraterrestrial game hunters and the purpose and design of advanced alien technology. You know, just like evolutionary biologists don't. (laughs) The alien beastie wakes up and escapes. Who'd have thought Earth sedatives would be less than entirely effective on a creature from space, right? (laughs) And Dr Brackett's one of the few humans who manages to escape. So Sterling K. Brown's man in black in chief, Will Traeger, orders her to be killed. Because this film was written by a (laughs) 12-year-old. Racket is saved, however, by McKenna and a busload of imprisoned military veterans who suffer from a variety of mental health disorders and were, it seems, incarcerated in the US government's cartoon crazy person prison. (laughs) This ragtag group of caricatures then heads off to the house of McKenna's estranged wife, Emily, Yvonne Strahovski, because the alien technology everyone, including other predators, wants to get their hands on it's ended up there due to a hilarious mix-up with an unpaid PO box bill. More specifically, it has ended up in the hands of McKenna's son Rory, Jacob Trembley, a child with Asperger's Syndrome who is, naturally, a genius who can decipher advanced alien technology in one night. Presumably this character is modelled after the same 12-year-old who wrote the script. <laughs> Action proceeds to happen, naturally, but it's pretty damn hard to care about it and even harder to give a crap about the overly large, subpar CGI mega-predator that becomes the main antagonist. Really, it's very difficult to believe that this film was written and directed by Shane Black. He's known for his funny writing, and I laughed a fair few times, certainly, but those scenes absolutely did not fit into the rest of the film. The tone is woefully misjudged. It's comedy, not humour, and it feels so out of place the script is risible, I'm really not joking about it feeling like it was written by an adolescent. For example, at one point someone says to Olivia Munn, I hear you wrote the book on evolutionary biology. Now, that kind of sentence structure is a cliché for sure, but it can serve as a useful shorthand to explain to an audience that someone is really, really good at what they do, especially in a particularly niche, esoteric or in some way hard to quantify capacity. It, however, resolutely does not work when referring to a field in which many, many people have, in fact, actually written many, many books. <laughs> so, and then there's the acting. Save for Boyd Holbrook, who manages to bring a little charisma to his role, it is insipid at best and downright bad at worst, Olivia Munn in particular giving a notably poor performance. Shane Black showed in Iron Man 3 that he could take an established world and inject humour and inventive action into it. But not here The most galling thing though Especially given that he was in the original Predator Is that he seems to have missed the whole point The alien was just that Alien Unknowable Dangerous In this film the damn things are subtitled <laughs> and I wish I was joking about that
0: What do they say? It's like, Hot out Bob That sort of thing they mostly
1: say absolutely nothing you might not guess about by their actions, but um, it's... Uh, <laughs> Is it,
0: I am going to kill a human now? No, okay, the, see you later.
1: <laughs> the traitor predator has found, has um, run away. Uh, we have now found the traitor predator. Let us kill the traitor predator, etc. <laughs> um. So yes, subtitled predators. Jeez, oh. <laughs> It was also seen, and this is really the crucial point, it was also seen until the film's climax exceedingly sparingly. Even in Predator 2, uh, there's not a lot you see, like the original mm. Predator shots from like the Predator's point of view, and you maybe get a wee bit more exploration of how the Predators are different and the different technology stuff. But for the most part, it's similar to the first one. And the Predator 2 even has... Some inventive shots like that scene because the first film was set in a jungle, and the second film, you think it's in a jungle, and then the helicopter just rises above the trees, and you see them in Los Angeles. And it's like you've got the, the juxtaposition of like it being the urban jungle, but also just it's a fake out to the audience. Mm-hmm. actually, there's some real craft there, not here. But as I said, yes, in the original, they're exceedingly sparingly used. You don't see the Predator much until the end when he's in his final confrontation with Arnie. In The Predator, again, that's this one, the new one, because they all, just use a number! For God's sake, use numbers, filmmakers! Um, In The Predator, the creatures are on full display from the get-go, and rather than a tense game of cat and mouse with horror and slasher elements, it's just a bog-standard action film. And boy, is that dull. I have a whole list of complaints. It is an actual list, I'm not even using that figuratively, I have an actual (laughs) list of complaints with this film. So yes, more of them. Like the fact that, though the film begins somewhere in Mexico, the majority of it, prison, house, spaceship and all, seems to take place within a convenient hour's drive radius somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. I may, may highly hypothetical, I may also have sworn very, very loudly in the cinema in response to the embarrassingly bad reference to one of the original film's most famous lines. But I won't take any more of your time. I'll just say that this is a poor, poor film. Kel Deception. Don't waste your time with it.
0: I am disappointed, because uh, I'd allowed myself to be a little bit hopeful about this, but, uh... Yeah, me too. Not hopeful enough to go out and see it, obviously, but, uh... <laughs> Oh, that'd be crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that's a great pity. Uh, yeah.
1: Hot garbage. Got absolutely hot garbage. Hey. Uh,
0: what, what a downer to end on? Let's let's invent a new film just here just now so we can give it a positive review so we don't need to go out in such a downer. <laughs> Crank three. Crank three with Nick, Nick Cage.
1: Cage as um, Jason Statham's dad and or brother and or enemy. As his dad and brother and enemy. I don't think that would be like anything we'd ever seen before Scott
0: (laughs) Guess that'll take us to the end of this podcast but, But just some feedback On the Twitters on a few things Friend, uh, perpetual dumb machine uh, at Blake Wrights on Twitter. The I'm the host podcast, of course. Mission Impossible Fallout. Besides the dartboard villain, and isn't he grand? Self congratulatory end. His only problem with Tom Cruise's latest paycheck was the jokes echoing the funny gag from Ghost Protocol. A totally cut off spy crew making do with subpar tools, without the framing, like a punchline without a setup. Yeah, uh, I guess we can record that a lot of these Mission Impossible films are basically the same film over and over again. Ah, well, <laughs> it's, it's still working, so.
1: Yeah, they, they haven't tired as, ma- as much as many others, other film series doing the same sort of thing have.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: they do have nice locations, um, and the quality action set pieces and the quality acting together get okay, the papers over that those cracks, maybe. Maybe that's the key, I'm not sure, but I, I certainly I'm not tired of them yet, although mm-hmm. that film does end in a way that suggests that it may be the end for one character in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, So whether there'll be more or not, I don't know.
0: And also on Twitter, at the underscore brilliant says that Mabamia Dos was amazing despite it being a B-album and Spy Who Dumped Me had its moments but was totally all over the shop. Yes, rather agree with both of those sentiments. Thanks very much for that. And that will take us to the end. The end, my friend. In a film where
1: one of the best reviewed films of the year turned out to be absolutely terrible, A highly anticipated sequel was considerably worse than a film with a giant shark. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this is a, in many ways, very disappointing (laughs) episode.
0: Strange old episode, but at least we had Nick Cage going full Nick Cage, and so it's certainly not a disappointment by any stretch of the imagination. So we will uh, catch you at the start of next month with some as-yet-undetermined podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, please, please do Um, You can do so in many Ways, Uh, why not use Twitter, that's at Fudson Film Why not use Facebook, that's facebook.com Slash Fudson Film, why not use Email, that's podcast At Fudson Film.com And if you want to, we're on there Individually as well Uh, Yes, so until next time, thank you Very much for your attention, I shall bid you adieu And I'm sure that Drew Tamdale shall do so As well. Fairly well